Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. We will... um, I like to begin by asking you to talk to each other. Part of Buddhism, one of the central tenets in the teachings of the Buddha is the importance of community and of building and sustaining friendships with uh, other people on the path, on a spiritual path, on a path of wisdom, compassion. Um, And my sense is like meditation centers on some level, your best bet at meeting other people that are, you know, interested in what you're interested in practicing, what you're practicing in. The problem with meditation centers is that you come here and you meditate. And it's such a solitary endeavor, you know, you do it in silence and go inward. Uh, And so we have to kind of create the opportunity for you to talk to each other rather than just meditate. I'm going to talk tonight about um, love. And um, so I'd like you to talk to each other about love. Big, broad topic. Um, What's it mean to you? What's it feel? What's love feel like? How do you know if you love someone? We use that term a lot, but how do you know when you like love someone? What's that mean to you? What's it feel like to love someone? And you know, maybe some of it could be romantic love, like I'm in love with this person, but also just like, I really love that friend. This is just a, a it's not romantic at all, but I just really love that person. Um, and Maybe ideally there's a sort of Buddhist concept that says, you know, we want to try to love all living beings, but also the humility, the reality is we don't love all living beings. You know, there's people that annoy the shit out of you and you don't love them. And there's the people who you don't know and you don't even, you know, you're not meeting the people that you're passing in traffic with love. Ultimately, that's the goal. But the reality is it's not how we are. It's not how we're wired. Maybe some of you are enlightened beings who spread love towards, um, but, and not that sort of like, I don't know, I'm just a big fan of authenticity and not a big fan of um, uh, what is derogatorily termed uh, toxic positivity, that sort of fake love. Like, I love everyone's like, you are so full of shit. You do not love everyone. It's a nice goal. It's a nice idea, but what's your actual experience of loving? Loving people that you, you know, romantically or loving people as in friendships or, or loving, you know, having that attitude of love towards strangers. So find a, a small group, talk to each other a little bit about love. And uh, the reason I'm introducing this topic and I'm going to reflect on it, I'll say more about it, is because um, yesterday I got married. Um, my, my, my partner, my partner of three years of myself, Lily, who's usually here, she's tuned in online tonight. She didn't want to leave the house. She's chilling. 
um, we got married yesterday. So I'm going to reflect on my experience of love and being in love and in relationship and how the Dharma has informed uh, love in my life and what I've learned. And, and in some ways, I'm going to talk about tonight uh, how long it took me to learn how to love. And that it was not something that I came to meditation knowing how to do very well. And that the Dharma in so many ways has taught me how to love and to not only give, but also receive love. So in your small groups, talk a little bit about, about love. And you're only going to have a couple of minutes each, so you're not going to get that deep. Uh, so in a concise way, what's love mean to you? What's it feel like? Small groups and at home, I'm going to put you in uh, breakouts. Sure. I know some of those um, breakout rooms for those of you at home were too big. I'm not sure if everybody got a chance to talk or not. It's tricky to, to do this in a concise way. So it's such a big topic that's so central to our lives. Um, we'll have a period of meditation and then I'll reflect some on my experience of love and how the Dharma has uh, informed, continues to inform, uh, has taught me. Uh, so much about love, so both kind of loving myself and loving others. So uh, find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed, meditative. Allowing our eyes to be gently closed and releasing any unnecessary tension, softening the head and neck and shoulders, trunk of the body. As we arrange our skeleton, this upright posture, let the flesh of your body hang as loosely as it can while maintaining this upright posture. Soften your belly, your jaw, your eyes. And bring this intention of love into your heart, into your mind, into your body. To meet yourself with love, with kindness, with acceptance. Even if you can't quite do that yet, just the intention, the aspiration to be loving towards your own mind even its unskillful tendencies to be loving towards your body, even with the difficult emotions and aches and pains of having a body. To be loving to our hearts, our emotional experience, meeting even our fear or our anger, with as much kindness, as much acceptance as we can in this moment.
And then just rest the awareness in the body, mindfulness of sensation. And think of it as loving awareness. Kind awareness, accepting awareness of the sensations that are here in this moment, present. The breath coming and going creates sensations at the nostril, the chest, the bellies. Give your attention to the sensations that the breath creates. Breathing in, no. This is the sensation, the direct experience of breathing in. Breathing out, no. This is how breathing out feels different perhaps than breathing in. Investigate, explore the sensations of the breath. In order to do this, we have to disengage from thinking about the future or past. As we think about the present, we bring our awareness to what's happening right now. Of course, the mind will continue to plan. Let it be in the background. Keep coming back to the body, sitting, feeling. And if you can get a sense of meeting your body with loving awareness.
Although we start with a somewhat narrow focus in the body, ignoring the mind, coming back to the breath over and over. Ultimately, mindfulness becomes inclusive. No longer ignoring the mind, no longer focusing on the breath, but bringing present time, non-judgmental, loving awareness to your whole being. The sense doors of sound and smell and taste and sight. The experience of thought and emotion in the mind and body. The mind has a tendency towards thinking of the future and the past. Become mindful, aware, awake to what your mind is doing right now. What kind of thoughts are coming through? Rather than trying to stop or ignore the mind, include it. Observe, investigate. And with this intention of being loving and kind, accepting, the mind is doubting or worrying. Can you meet it with a loving awareness? Reminiscing, resenting, whatever your thoughts are doing. Kindness towards our direct experience. as much as we can right now.
perhaps one of the most important aspects of our being, of our experience to learn to meet with kindness, acceptance, and love is our pain. So if your body becomes uncomfortable from sitting still, bring awareness to that unpleasant sensation. If unpleasant emotions or thoughts are happening in the heart-mind, rather than ignoring or avoiding the pain, the Dharma, our practice, teaches us to turn towards it, to develop compassion, a loving attitude towards our own pain.
accepting, kind, loving awareness of your experience just as it is, pleasant or unpleasant, comfortable or uncomfortable, tranquil or anxious. Not meditating to change how we feel, but how we relate to what we're feeling, how we respond, learning to hold our own pain with compassion. Coming to understand the impermanent nature of all of our sensations and emotions, all of our experience. Letting go of needing this moment to be any different than it is. The pleasant arising and passing. The unpleasant arising and passing.
the Buddha once said something like, one could search the whole world, all realms of existence, and never find anybody more worthy than one's love, of one's love than oneself. There's nobody more worthy of receiving your love and kindness, <laughs> compassion and acceptance than yourself. This is a reminder, those parts of the mind that feel unworthy, unlovable, are confused. It's an ignorant, confused part, common part of human experience. The Dharma is teaching us to uncover, to recover that ability of love towards ourselves. And as we do this with our mindful awareness, we become better and better at feeling and accepting and sharing that love with each other. Perhaps the flip is also true that there's nobody less worthy of your love. So as I said at the beginning of class, um, I got married yesterday. This is my honeymoon <laughs> with, with you guys. Um, we're not taking, a, not taking a honeymoon, kind of doing a staycation, trying not to work too much this week and uh, have a retreat next weekend. So we're not, we're not going out of town. Um, but we had this beautiful wedding and it was, um, Basically, our, we've been together for three years, like this, this week, and so kind of sort of three years into this relationship and making this um, ceremony and vows and connection, commitment, legal, you know, marriage ceremony we did yesterday. And so I thought it would uh, make sense tonight to reflect um, on love and um, what it's like for me. And so, uh, so I feel like some of what I'm going to say is um, it's very personal to my experience and your experience may be different. Um, 
you know, even the way that I ended that, the meditation with, you know, the, the teaching from the Buddha that says something like, uh, we could never find anybody more worthy of our love than ourselves. Uh, it's taking me a really long time. It took me a really long time to really grasp that. And uh, because I, uh, I, I think some people probably, maybe that are with us tonight, or some people that come to meditation, to Buddhism, um, uh, have some, you know, ability to love and love themselves a bit. And, uh, you know, there are people who actually meditate just because they want to, um, you know, they're already pretty good people. And they just want to be you know, a little bit better. <laughs> they just want to have a little less stress or, but it, they don't come out of like, you know, addiction and self-hatred and, you know, deep confusion the way that was my experience. You know, I didn't, when I, when I came to, you know, it's May. Um, and so I was just reflecting on, you know, this time of year, uh, May is somewhat of an anniversary for me and my life and my practice. Actually, it was, uh, this time, May, uh, I think May 10th, 1988, I was incarcerated for the umpteenth time. I'd been incarcerated a lot and I, I got incarcerated and it was when I started meditating and it was 35 years ago this month and where I was sitting in this cell and I was given the meditation instructions, the simple mindfulness instructions. And uh, my friend, Jason Murphy, uh, who's here tonight and also teaches a class here, um, was in juvenile hall with me that time too. We were both 35 years ago, we're sitting in juvenile hall and, and uh, both of us on some level had started our practices. But anyways, for me, I started my practice and, and my, uh, you know, at that time I was an active addiction, you know, drug addict, alcoholic, and um, I didn't, I hated myself. And I, I felt a lot of hatred. I felt a lot of anger, a lot of fear, a lot of uh, unworthiness. And I didn't know much of anything about love. I mean, I would have said like, there's a couple of people on the planet that I loved, you know, like I love my parents or my, you know, couple of friends or whatever. Like I would, you know, maybe I would use that term, but the reality is, I didn't actually know what it meant. And I would never like think that I loved myself in any way or that that was even a, um, I don't know if I would think back then that it wasn't an option, but that it wasn't really a desirable. Love seemed like such a weird hippie, soft, vulnerable, undesirable state of being. <laughs> um, you know, my rebellion was fueled by anger and felt strong and, and, you know, powerful to be angry. The only thing I loved was drugs. <laughs> I really loved drugs and it's the wrong term, but like that, that was what I loved, you know, like that, which let me escape from my pain. You know, that which let me, gave me some relief. I really was focused on. So these reflections of like 35 years later, I'm 52 years old. I was a 17 year old drug addict kid that started meditating. Here I am 35 years later, 52 years old. And um, I am no expert at love <laughs> at all, but I've had, uh, I've changed a lot. 
you know, some of it is like I've grown up. <laughs> I'm not a, a angsty teenager anymore. I'm an angsty adult now, but um, I've grown up as part of it. But really the Dharma, it's for me, it's a little bit hard to parse how much of it is maturing and life experience because the Dharma has been the central practice in my life for these three and a half decades. Um, so I assign most of the healing transformation and experience of learning to uh, know what love is and desire it and seek it internally and also externally and in relational uh, and not only in romantic relationships, but loving friendships. Sangha, I started with the importance of Sangha, of friends on the path. And it's, uh, it's very, very important to me, friendship. So I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm not, I don't want to in any ways try to claim to be really, really good at loving or really, really good at relationships, but I've learned a lot over the years. And, um, you know, a lot of, I feel like, I'm talk about a few different things, but, you know, I asked you guys to define I don't know if you did it in your small groups at the beginning, but like, what, what, it, what is love? What does it feel like? What does it mean? What's it mean to you? And, you know, unfortunately we have to use words to define feelings. Um, and sometimes, so we have to use all, for something like love, I feel like we have to use a lot of different words. And I use a lot of them in the meditation, what it, what it means to me. Uh, to me, feeling loving feels like a, an experience of wanting to give, of generosity. One of the aspects of love feels like a, a generosity, a, a feeling, a desire to, to share, to uh, care for. Um, love also feels um, warm and, and a bit open. I don't even know if open is a feeling, but it feels expansive. It feels warm. It feels generous. Um, and an aspect of love to me feels like um, this, the compassion, the um, tolerance and compassion for unpleasantness. I think sometimes there can be this connotation of love is all of the good, pleasant stuff. But that actually love feels like uh, being able to sit with the pain of existence and to meet pain. And mindfulness has taught me so much. To be able to meet pain, sitting here with the, the achy knee or the sore back or the loud mind or the broken heart or the anxious sensations or emotions that are coming through, the unpleasant aspects of being uh, are included in, uh, you know, so I guess it's tolerance, learning to, you know, uh, love includes tolerance and acceptance. It's like this. Whatever is happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, love feels like this accepting response. Uh, all of which I didn't know how to do. I wasn't very, I didn't know how to, before meditation taught me all of this. Buddhism taught me all of this. I think meditation a lot, but also, let me see, what else do I want to say? Uh, so compassion for 
as a central aspect, tolerance, um, forgiveness. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe forgiveness as a prerequisite. Forgiveness, in my experience and in, this, in these teachings, is um, letting go of clinging to the pain of the past and being angry about the pain that has already transpired, resenting it, hating it. And in order to be loving in the present, my, my experience is that when I'm in holding to a resentment, when I'm not forgiving, it's blocking that warm, open, loving, <laughs> generous experience. So forgiveness um, is an aspect of, of love, but maybe it's a prerequisite to love. In the loving kindness teachings, the Metta Sutta from the Buddha, I said this a couple of weeks ago to you guys, but um, there's three lines where he talks about forgiveness. He, you know, he says, in order to have loving kindness for all living beings, wishing may all beings be at ease. He says, we can hold no ill will towards any living being. No, no uh, spite, no anger, no hatred. We have to free ourselves from that very natural human tendency to be wishing harm upon others. You know, when somebody has hurt you and you're like, I kind of hope you get hit by a bus. I hope, I hope terrible shit happens to you because you hurt me. <laughs> I wish harm upon you. Like that's such a natural instinctual thing that we humans do. But part of loving is learning to have compassion and forgiveness instead of ill will, instead of resentment, instead of wishing harm upon each other. You know, love gets thrown around. I talked about, you know, this sort of toxic possibility, po positivity and, and fucking bumper sticker dharma, like, you know, Instagram meme, love everybody. It's, you know, but really, I, I feel like, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I feel like actually being loving is incredibly rare and radical. And it's not just a decision we can make. I don't know if this is true, but it seems true to me. I don't think we can just decide I'm going to be loving. It's a little bit like deciding uh, I'm going to be in really good physical shape. I'm going to fucking be fit. Saying I'm gonna be loving is like saying, I'm gonna be skinny. Some of you are skinny, so it's not the right example, but uh, it's that like, oh, I wanna be loving. Oh, I'm gonna to have to really go to the gym every day. I'm gonna to have to practice. I'm gonna to have to train my mind, my heart, my whole being to learn to love myself to learn to love and have compassion and forgiveness for others. It's not just a, you know, once in a while we meet people who uh, say like, oh yeah, I tried to meditate, but it didn't work. And, you know, and I'm just like, it's like, I went to the gym once and I didn't get in shape. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to play the violin and I just wasn't, I tried it twice. The Buddha said that, you know, we call our center against the stream. 
and it comes from just after the Buddha's awakening, he said this path of awakening goes against the normal status quo of humanity, which is clinging to pleasure, which is aversion to pain, and is this self-centeredness, clinging to I and me and mine, none of which are loving. Hatred isn't loving, clinging isn't loving, self-centeredness isn't loving. In order to get to a place of love and the ability to really love ourselves and each other and, and exist in intimate relationships, which is the advanced practice, I feel like this is controversial, but I feel like actually relationship is way more uh, difficult and radical than celibacy and monasticism now i wouldn't have this debate with my monastic teachers who i honor and you know many of my teachers are monks and celibates and and they've taken this path of saying you know what and some of them would humbly say you know what trying to be loving and non-attached in intimate sexual relationship it's just too hard we're taking an easier path what you guys are doing trying to be non-attached and compassionate and loving in a sexual, intimate relationship? Good luck. <laughs> That's in advanced practice. You're really asking for it. And I think this is an important frame for us. I love what Buddhism has taught me about uh, what we're trying to do to be loving isn't easy, isn't even like normal, isn't even um, isn't common. Now we we think like oh well, we're humans and we have this you know survive. We could turn the, the AC. It's a little chilly, right? It's giving you an opportunity to practice with discomfort. You're welcome. Doesn't, I don't know, does it, it feels to me like there's this sort of like, yeah, you know, you're just supposed to love yourself and you're supposed to love each other and you're supposed to find a relationship, fall in love, get married, be in a love, as though it's just like the easiest, normalist human thing to do. And it is. But there's also a reason why, you know, the divorce rates are so high and abuse in relationships is so high. And, you know, people who don't love themselves are entering into relationships. <laughs> and then wondering, why is this so fucking difficult? I know for myself in my first 10 or maybe even 15 years of practice, um, I, I wasn't, uh, I couldn't be in a healthy relationship because I, I needed to do forgiveness practice every day for 10 years first. And now that, you know, again, very personal to me, that might not be true for you. But for me, I came in with such low self-esteem and, and hatred and so many resentments, so much anger that there was a, just a prerequisite of internal work that needed to be done before I could really be present and loving for another person. And even at 15 years, you know, I think you know, 
you know, I'm on, this is my second marriage. You know, and when I went into my first marriage in my 30s, um, I thought I had my shit together. I was like, yeah, you know, 20 years into my recovery and my practice and my, you know, forgiveness and I'm a teacher and, you know, and then I, it's, you know, and I, I don't think I failed terribly at the way that I showed up in that first marriage. But what I did wake up to is like, oh, I picked somebody who's actually not doing the, the work. And there's something in me that picks somebody who actually isn't going to return the love. And right, that's a, which I believe is a lack of self-love, a lack of wisdom. So I feel like uh, the Dharma meditation, um, the mindfulness that we did, learning to be in discomfort, taught me how to tolerate myself, learning to sit still with my mind, with my emotions, to turn towards and investigate and see what's going on in here. Before I started meditating, I was so externally focused, mostly on drugs. <laughs> But, you know, so much looking outside of myself for something to make me feel okay. And some of it was sex and some of it was drugs and some of it was attention and some of it was violence or whatever, you know, external refuge I was seeking. But then coming to meditation and what's going on in here? And learning to tolerate myself. And eventually learning to, to say, I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. And the loving kindness, may I be at ease, may I be happy, may I be free from suffering. And the years of doing those practices and not meaning them and not feeling them. If you're new to the Dharma and it's not really landing yet and you, know, you do forgiveness and it doesn't feel great or you do loving kindness and there's that part of your mind that says, you don't really deserve it or it's not going to happen for you. That was my experience. But I persevered. If, uh, you know, I'm tenacious like that sometimes in some areas. I'm like, you know, the Dharma is the only thing that makes sense to me. So I'm going to keep doing it. This meditation is the only thing that's giving me any relief. So I'm going to do it every day. I'm going to go to the retreats. I'm going to go all in because it feels like my only hope. When it comes to spiritual teachings, none of the other shit made sense. Well, all of this sort of external God's going to restore you to sanity. Really? Good luck with that. Makes sense to some people. Not dissing. Didn't make sense to me. To me, it didn't make sense. But the Dharma saying, you can train your own mind. You can learn to forgive yourself. You can learn to be present for your own pain. You can develop compassion through your own effort. That made sense to me, okay? I'm not very good at it, but I'm gonna keep trying. And that perseverance, that long-term, I'm gonna get on the cushion every day. I'm gonna go on the retreats. I'm gonna study the teachings. I feel like the Buddha's teachings also have um, normalized, you know, just starting with the first noble truth normalizing that suffering and in some ways not loving yourself is normal. Rather than feeling like, why, you know, I should. 
I should love myself. I should be comfortable. I should be at ease. I should be. And just realizing like, no, actually, this is really radical. Humans don't naturally love themselves. It's not built into our survival instinct. It's going to take a lot of work to learn to truly love yourself. The first noble truth, suffering is what's normal, right? The first noble truth is not all beings experience self-love. <laughs> the first noble truth is all beings experience attachment and aversion and suffering. Our survival instinct of millions of years of biological evolution have brought us to this place where we have these, you know, big brains and consciousness that have ideas about love, but don't have a wiring, a nervous system, or a brain that's very good at it. And the Dharma comes along and says, uh, here's a way to train yourself to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate toward yourself and others. A long-term path of transformation. The second noble truth saying, you know, the reason why there's all of this suffering um, is because of this repetitive craving that we all have and normalizing it. Like, oh, it's not just me. It's not just because I'm a traumatized drug addict. This is the human condition. This is how it is for everyone. Helped me a lot kind of normalize it and, and um, think like, oh, it's not so personal. It's not all my fault. This is, uh, this is what it's like for all of us. We all have our own battles that we're fighting and our own experiences and our own conditioning that we have to face, understand. And then this eightfold path, you know, the third noble truth that says, and it's possible in this, I mean, Buddhism is so helpful. It starts with the bad news, the normalizing, it's their suffering. All of us have it. There's a cause. It's not your fault. But then the third truth that says it's possible in this lifetime to come to a place, you know, of enlightenment, but really we could say of love. You can, in this lifetime, you can learn to love yourself. You can learn to have love and kindness for all living beings. You can learn to be in a healthy relationship. If you're willing to do this eightfold path, understand karma, cause and effect. Change the selfish, fear-based motivations to kind, generous, loving intentions. Be careful with your speech. Be careful with your actions. Be careful with your relationship to work and money mindfulness, concentration, put all of this effort, follow this path, and you will learn to love again. Or, or you know, some of you aren't totally uh, alienated from love, <laughs> but uh, on a deeper level, a, a deeper way of understanding uh, our worthiness and our ability and our capacity to experience love for ourselves. I don't know if this is totally true how much I'm projecting it, but I do have this sense that um, for most things, it has to come from the inside out. And that if we don't have a pretty good sense of love for ourselves, we're not going to be able to truly love others in a deep way. 
that it has to come from the inside out. The Buddha spent seven years of intensive practice before he started teaching, before he started. He said, until I understand this directly from the inside, I'm not going to try to tell other people what to do. And seven years, that seems like, fuck, how about 30? <laughs> how about our whole lifetime? I had the experience, you know, waking up today, newly married, of um, deep gratitude. And... Um, and just deep appreciation of, of the Dharma in my life and where I'm at in my life. And um, it hasn't always, you know, it hasn't always been easy and um, not all of the relationships that I, uh, you know, have invested in have worked out. And, but being in this, you know, friendships and communities and teachers, I've had, you know, so much uh, challenges over the years. It hasn't been smooth sailing in my experience. But all of it, uh, just, you know, today, just having this uh, feeling of, of so much gratitude of like, right here I am. Uh, my wife's brother in the, one of the toasts at the wedding last night said, um, or yesterday, said something like, you know, because we've both been married before and said this marriage for the, um, something about like the, the, the second half or like the end of your life relationship. And I was like, fuck, it's true. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it's true, you know, of like, you know, this isn't that like getting married in your 20s and having 50 years, you know, 60 years. This is getting married in your 50s and hoping that, you know, this is the relationship for the second half of life, for the last half of life or third or quarter or whatever it ends up being of life. And like I said before, it's hard to, to tell, but um, I'll give all of the credit to Buddhism because Buddhism, I mean, I'm, I've done a lot of psychotherapy. Um, I've done the 12 steps. I've, um, you know, I've chanted Hare Krishna. I've danced with the Sufis. I've, you know, I've done a lot of different um, practices, modalities but mostly Buddhism. Buddhism has always been what makes the most sense to me, even more than Western psychology. And I also have a degree in psychology and I, I like some of the therapeutic techniques, but mostly when I'm like reading psychology and looking even at the neuroscience stuff, I'm like, yeah, the Buddha said that shit 2,600 years ago. You guys are just packaging it and selling it. <laughs> um, so mostly for me, it feels like the Buddha Dharma is what has, uh, has and is continuing to teach me how to love and to bring um, forgiveness into my relationship and bring compassion into my relationship from the inside out, both for myself and the people that I'm in relationship with. Um, so those are some of my thoughts about love. I'll open up for some questions, stuff I didn't talk about uh, that you'd like to talk about or any of your experience with uh, love and the Dharma. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Noah. I just, uh, 
right away when you talked about um, it starting uh, internally and uh, talked started talking about self-love, not one person in our group said anything about loving themselves. And for me, I think that the turning point in my recovery and my spiritual life, everything was when uh, I had someone tell me about self-love and I'm like, what's that? You know, because all my life, it's like, I think people, you know, people I love don't love me, whatever the case may be. I never love myself enough to even take compliments, you know, and until I turn that around and even my, my, my first practice of trying to love myself was taking myself out to dinner every day. I, every time I got paid date, I, I would go to sushi and take myself to sushi to treat myself because I deserved it. And I, that's what I would do for somebody I loved, you know, and turn it around and then the practice and you and Jason and Warden, everybody, Jeff, all of you, you know, we talk about, you know, loving kindness a lot. And, and but uh, not many people talk about self-love. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Thank you. I'll see you this weekend. All right. See you then. Thank you. Anybody in the room have a thought, a question? Please. One of the things that makes me think of, because I was sort of been doing stuff with like the hindrances lately, is, is um, you seem sort of brimming with optimism and hope right now. But what about when you're in the opposite and you're dealing with doubt? Um, which, you know, maybe doubt, like I have a specific doubt right now, you know, it's like one of my my kids are about to be on opposite sides of the country. So it's like wherever I go, I'm going to be missing one of them. And I have a lot of doubts about my decisions. But, um, or I mean, even, you know, even in my practice sometimes, I'm like, I'm sitting here for five or 10 hours a week when I could be doing something fucking else. Like, like you know, like, not always I feel like that, but sometimes it's like, hey, well, I'm spending a lot of time here. Is it really worth it? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, could you hear him at home? I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. He was saying like, um, you know, it's, it's easy to be optimistic when you're feeling optimistic, but what about he was, he was, uh, Ramage was talking about the five hindrances and the fifth hindrance is uh, when we're being attacked by doubt and we don't, we're not sure what decision to make and we're not sure if we're making the right decision and we don't feel that hopeful or optimistic. And there's all this sort of, um, skepticism and, and doubt and, um, so the most important thing I think around this is knowing that it's doubt and naming it as, oh, this is my mind doubting. Because there's that part of what mindfulness teaches us is to be aware of what's happening, to know, oh, this is doubt. Because usually we're in it and we're believing it. And we're like, really like, oh, no, these are important decisions. I'm going to make the wrong decision. And we're not, we don't have that meta awareness not loving kindness but that dis you know kind of distance from it to be like oh this is just my mind in fear and it, actually what's being called for here is some compassion and some uh and some loving awareness of the doubting mind and that is not personal it's not your fault it's normalized that it's one of the hindrances that we all experience craving and aversion restlessness sloth and doubt unavoidable part of the human condition. And so when it's happening, just knowing that it's happening right now, doubt. And, you know, you can't just stick in that noting it, naming it as doubt, because there's actually a decision to be made. One of the things that I didn't say about love and just maybe life in general, Dharma practice, um, 
is that I find necessary. Also, the Buddha puts it in the Metta Sutta uh, is around um, humility. And for me, humility feels like um, the willingness to fail, the willingness to maybe make the wrong decision. And, you know, that because that when we're really stressing about the right decision, there's that internal pressure of like, I can't fuck this up, especially when it's about kids. But then being a parent, being a, a person, that humility of like, I'm probably going to fuck this up, <laughs> especially when there's a decision like that, like there's no right decision here, whether I, you know, uh, if you didn't hear, I don't know if you heard him, but having two children and they're going to be on with two different people in two different sides of the country. And it's like, well, you know, I can stay here and not see that one as much, or I can move there and not see this much. Like there's no win. And so that humility of I'm going to do what feels right, what feels the best. And this is a whole separate maybe thing about parenting. Um, my sense of parenting is that part of the karma and the contract of parenting is that we no longer get to do what we want all of the time. That we, uh, it's a, for me, it's a contract of um, I got to do what's best for my kids. And so, like, actually, I, I wanted to, uh, when I got divorced from my first marriage a long time ago, um, I wanted to leave Los Angeles, but I couldn't because I have kids in Los Angeles. And I thought back, and this is a little personal, but I thought back about how when my parents got divorced when I was a kid and my dad moved from California to New Mexico. And I was just like, what, what the, how, why did he do that? Because I was in that situation where it was like, I had one parent in that state, one parent in this state. And I was, you know, going back and forth my whole life. And so my sense was, uh, as a parent, even if you don't want to stay where, you know, the kids are, you got to stay where the kids are. Like, I like LA. I'm not dissing LA. I'm happy to be here. Um, but there was a feeling at that time was like, you know, I wouldn't mind being back in Santa Cruz or, you know, out, out of the city and back into the Redwoods. And actually, I'd like to take the kids to the Redwoods, but because I had an ex, then wasn't negotiable. So anyways, I, that was my part of my view. I think coming back mostly to doubt is that you just try to be kind to it and loving to it and you still have to make a decision. I hope that's helpful. Uh, Tara, there was somebody else online here, so we'll, I'll come to you afterwards. Michael, go ahead. Thanks, Noah. Really appreciate the topic, and it resonated in so many different ways. And I appreciate your your vulnerability and uh, authenticity, and like leaning way into it. And I really like the piece about forgiveness that you know you've talked about frequently in the past, and and, and brought up tonight relative to forgiveness being, you know, a, a practice for people who love poorly. And that really resonates for me. And, and it's something that I feel like has been a benefit, whether it's self-forgiveness or forgiveness for others, because like being in a partnership and, and being in a loving relationship, like, you know, I, I can be vulnerable today, but admit, yeah, there's going to be times when, when, when I'm, when I'm wrong or, I'll mess up or I, I won't be as attentive or I'll take things personally. And I can like sit back in, in meditation and, and, and I guess I can see myself coming better nowadays. Like I can like stop and pause, take a breath and just 
not like come out of pocket and um, like react. I can kind of like try to respond skillfully from a place of equanimity or kindness or compassion. And so I guess basically a lot of the stuff you're saying tonight resonates on a personal level. And I'm definitely someone who's, you know, someone who's loved uh, poorly in the past. And I feel like practice, dedicated Dharma practice and refuge recovery have really like incrementally helped with that. And like the, the heart practices really try, you know, inform me like moment to moment, like more so. And just wanted to say thank you. Thanks, Michael. You know, as I heard it reflected back, because I, I, I did hear myself say kind of forgiveness as a prerequisite. Um, I want to take it back. You know, my, my current sense is that there's um, a tremendous amount of healing in most of us that needs to be done and that it's relational healing and that it's actually can be done in relationship. And it's been a lot of my experience that relationship challenging, uh, sometimes painful, but that it's actually, uh, I actually don't have the perspective that like we have to do all of our wisdom, forgiveness first, and then enter into relationship that actually we have to, a lot of it has to happen in relationship. Um, and that there's some levels of that kind of forgiveness and tolerance and compassion when it comes to intimacy that can't be done outside of a relationship and that actually needs an intimate connection in order to experience getting your buttons pushed and having the opportunity to be tolerant and compassion and let that intimacy and love in and to extend it out. So uh, I, I tend to think more about uh, the work we do in relationships than forgive everyone first, love yourself first. We learn to do it in relationship, I think, for the most part. Um, Tara, go ahead. Well, I had kind of a two-part metaphysical question, which was that um, I know that you were saying in Buddhism, there is some sort of idea of love of coming to a greater sense of love and compassion and creating that more with compassion for self and others and seeing like, uh, less of a rigid self uh, concept. So it is that, uh, is there some sort of guiding? I mean, okay, so there's, it's not like Christianity or Judaism where there's like a God that's creative force or love, but is there sort of a, a, any kind of principle or um, guiding, like maybe the will of the dharma or the you know um what are you looking for you're looking for some sort of external so not just external but also like that we're part of that is evolving or maybe changing through this life and beyond of uh some sort of presence of compassion or love or and also how does that relate to well, one of the difficult things is impermanence. So like I was married for 11 years and with someone for 16 years who died, who I love very much. And so I, you know, I don't believe in some sort of like um, heaven, you know, like in the Christian way, but I'm just wondering if there's any sort of continuity and like, just what, what is the Theravada uh, concept of existence or change in after this life and how that relates to love? You know, I feel like mostly the way that I was talking about 
love tonight was on the relative human relational kind of internal and you know you're, you're questioning uh, on more of a um, ultimate or um, level and um, I'm not sure that the kind of love that I'm talking about, this sort of relational learning to love ourselves and be in intimate relationships really uh, applies or is even skillful to try to go to the ultimate with it. So I'd ask you to just kind of keep it here in this life, in your relationship to yourself and not into the kind of bigger cosmology of things. Just keep it in. Am I loving to myself? Do I meet my pain with compassion? Can I meet other people's pain with love and compassion? I, the way that I'm talking about it tonight, rather than going off into a theoretical framework of the cosmological, under, you know, like it doesn't feel, um, it's not what I'm talking about tonight. Well, it's just that it's hard when you lose someone you love and you sort of look for- I mean, Buddha, I mean, I'll answer that piece. It's nine o'clock, so. Um, I'll answer that piece. You know, Theravada Buddhism believes in reincarnation, and um, you know that there's a a karmic momentum that continues from lifetime to lifetime. You know that. That's it. <laughs> so we'll. Um, sorry, I know that there were some other hands and and conversation to be had, but it's nine o'clock, so we'll end here. Um, We have this three-day meditation retreat starts on Friday, this week, Friday, a uh, couple hours um, east up into the mountains from, from Los Angeles. Uh, there's still space available. They, they want us to kind of close down registration and give them the final numbers. Uh, so if you're planning to come, register tonight. Um, rather than waiting and Thursday being like, can I come? Um, register, you know, like you can still come if you right now are inspired and want to go, you know, sit for three days this weekend uh, and retreat with us, but register tonight and because we're going to send in the final numbers. We've actually already sent in the final numbers, but we can uh, change them if anybody else wants to come. There is room and um, I think, you know, we, we ran short. It's cost us $25,000 to rent this retreat center for the weekend. And we only brought in $20,000 and partially because I gave away way too many scholarships, which I have a tendency to do. Um, Cause I, you know, I always want people to have access even if they don't have the resources. So we're about five grand short on the retreat. So if there are people, uh, more people who register, it'll help us make up that uh, deficit. Um, but also if anybody wants to be generous and make a donation to the scholarship, because I kind of gave away scholarships without having any scholarship fund, which I have a tendency to do, thinking you know, usually it works out, usually and, um, you know, it balances out enough, but this time we're actually going to run short. It's not going to, you know, bankrupt us or anything, but it's nice when we break even on the retreats and they don't cost us money to provide uh, to the community. And the Thailand pilgrimage that's, that I'm leading in November is starting to fill up. Um, so uh, if you're planning to come to that, probably good to register soon. Um, it's starting, there's, there's a bunch of people coming and at some point we'll close the registration. So think about that, November 10th through 20th. Um, if you're planning to come get signed up for that, it's gonna be a pretty cool 
uh, adventure with some retreat and some time in some monasteries and some tourists, uh, you know, looking at golden Buddha statues and being like, well, how the fuck is this Buddhism? Um, you know, and seeing some monks on the street smoking cigarettes and you're like, wait, what's going on? Those guys are fucking smoking. Like, I think I saw some monks down there at the strip club. I don't know. What's, what's Buddhism really about? I don't know. Um, anyways, all of that. Join us. Class is done by donation against the stream as a nonprofit organization, uh, fully dependent on your uh, generosity. Be as generous as you can be. $25 for drop-in class is suggested donation. Give more if you can uh, and give less if that's what's you know, in your financial feasibility at this point. Everyone's welcome. No one turned away for lack of funds, but um, give us your money anyways. <laughs> just for the karma of it. Did I forget anything, Sebastian? September, we'll have a seven-day silent retreat at the same place up in the mountains. Um, so if you want to do a, a week-long retreat in September, uh, there's a flyer over there. It's a refuge recovery retreat, but everyone's welcome. So come sit with us for seven days in September. We'll leave it there for tonight. Oh, last thing. My mom, who is uh, the top third square in um, from our view, I don't know if it is from your view, tomorrow is her 79th birthday. Happy birthday. Patty. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Patty. Happy birthday, Mom. May any merit Happy that birthday, comes from Patty. our practice tonight be shared with Patty Washko. You've only got a few years left. May you get enlightened in this <laughs> lifetime oh, and uh, outward in all directions to all beings everywhere. Happy birthday, Mom. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.